Welcome to the Empowered Investor Podcast. Have you ever felt overwhelmed by the sheer volume of choices and voices telling you how to plan or invest for your future? With his straightforward approach, host Keith Matthews of Tulette Matthews & Associates cuts through the noise to help you create a winning action plan for you and your family. The decision-making framework discussed in this show can transform you and your investment experiences and will increase your odds of becoming financially secure. Learn more and subscribe today at tma-invest.com. Welcome to the Empowered Investor Podcast. Today, I'm joined with my two co-hosts, Jackson Matthews and Lawrence Greenberg. Jackson, you've been an advisor for about three years. You got your CIM. You've been working with clients. It's your first time on the podcast. How do you feel? I feel very excited. For the last two and a half years or so, I've been on the back end of the podcast, right. doing the research, preparing the skeleton for the podcast, and then editing it after the fact. And so I'm very excited to be on the forefront this time. Well, I tell you, you've been instrumental in ensuring that we have good notes for the episodes, good skeletons. And I'm sure it's made you a better advisor because you have to be on your toes and keep doing research. I mean, I did that a bit at the beginning and it did help me a lot. So Lawrence, it's not your first time. You've been doing the podcast for like five, six times now. So I'm sure you're excited to be here. Always happy to be here. Perfect. Perfect. Otherwise, I'll have to kick you out of the show. <laughs> it's okay. So we're going to do a very special book today. So this book has taken the financial industry and, you know, I would say the book industry at large by surprise and like a storm. It's The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. Guys, I can't tell you, I can't think about a person that I've suggested the book that hasn't loved the book. So tell me just your general impression of the book. What did you love about it and why are we doing this episode today? I really like the book. Yeah, I read it twice in preparation for this podcast. Twice? Well, I read it for the second time in preparation, but <laughs> I'm impressed. Jeff. Definitely won't be the last time. I'll reread it over my lifetime, but I really like the book cuz you know, it's filled with stories and anecdotes of, you know, money stories and how different people think about money differently and it makes you yourself think about money differently in ways that you probably wouldn't think about it unless you were reading the stories and unless you were prompted about it. 100%. So what I'll say is, I mean, I love this book. I think it's great and any person with any financial background of any kind, regardless of your knowledge, exceptional book. What I'll say is I've read a lot of financial books out there. There's a ton. But this one is, you know, he's really good at storytelling, you know, making these things very digestible and, and easy to understand. And he uses storytelling extremely well. It's a must read. I mean, it's like five hours. It's a five hour read and you'd be better for it. So look, we're going to do, there's a lot in the book. I mean, the book packs a lot of punch for the amount of pages that it has. So obviously we can't do it justice in 30 minutes. So what we've done is we're going to distill and break down like what we think are the most important points and, you know, in regard to our client, in regards to our clients and our listeners. So we're going to break down the sections and we're going to have a takeaway per section to have actionable items. And I think that's the best way to do it justice, so to speak. So there's a really good quote in the book that I just think it's the book in a micro summary. That's what made the book for me. And it shows like why it's so important to look at things from a different perspective. And the quote goes like, something like this, your personal experiences with money make up maybe 0.0001 of what's happened in the world, but maybe 80% of how you think the world works. So 
that's a best segue for the first section that we're going to talk about, which is the roles of emotion in investing. You know, emotions are very important. So Jackson, break that down for me. What are the main emotions, the main pitfalls when it comes to emotions and portfolios? And then throw some examples from the book. Yeah. So the role of emotions and investing is, you know, a huge part of finance. And that's why Morgan spends so much time breaking it down in the book. I think emotions are probably the single biggest force that stands between an investor and a purely successful investment journey. You know, it causes you to make investment decisions that are probably not the most optimal. And, you know, sometimes it may pay off, but other times it may really put your portfolio success at risk. Right. So give me some examples of what pitfalls can people fall for? Well, you know, there's so many mental biases, but just to name one, you know, loss aversion, for example, it's when an investor will hang on to a losing stock that has an unrealized loss in it and they refuse to sell it because they want to see it come back up, even though the prospects of that investment might be poor. So you bought Peloton, it totally went down, you're attached to it, you don't want to sell it. That's Exactly. You refuse to sell it, you want to see it go back up. Interesting. Okay. So what about an example from the book? Morgan has an excellent example from the book. It's about a janitor named Ronald Reed. And so this janitor, he had a very simple lifestyle. He had a pretty modest income. You know what he did? He controlled what he could. He saved what he could over his lifetime and he watched how much he spent. And then from there, he monitors his emotions and he basically let the markets do their magic. And so he waited, you know, 40 years for his investments to compound. And then by the end of it, his family, once he passed away, was pleasantly surprised that he had amassed $8 million in his estate. Wow. Now, people were shocked almost that this janitor was able to have a net worth of $8 million by the end of his life. But he did what most people cannot do, and that's keep their emotions 100% in check and let the magic of compounding do its work. Wow. That is a crazy story. And, you know, think about like all the things that happen over you know, 40, 50 years, I mean, recessions, wars, bad things, you know, bad events, you know, 9-11. I mean, you can think about a lot of things that just derail and put fear in people's minds. And it's absolutely remarkable. And I think the big takeaway here is that there's quite a lot of writing in this example and a story of Ronald Reed about how shocked, you know, his family and friends were. They had no idea that he had that much money because he lived within his means, very modest person. And he understood that spending is the enemy of wealth. Absolutely. There's another example there that I found it was great. It talks about the odds of the stock market. So tell me more about that. I mean, this really talks about, you know, lengthening your time horizon will give you more success in the markets. And the more you can control your investment behavior and your emotions, the more likely you'll succeed. And so this talks about the historical odds that the U.S. markets will go up. So over a one day period, historically, investments will go up 50% of the time. So it's a coin flip. Exactly. On day one. So the more you lengthen that time horizon, the more the markets are likely to go up. So over a one-year period, the markets will go up 68% of the time. Over a 10-year period, it goes up to 88%. And over a 20-year period, so far, it has gone up 100% of the time. So this really just speaks to the fact that if you can do a good job at honing in on your investor emotions over the long term, you are more likely to succeed. I think that hones in on an important fact that investing is a game of probabilities. There are no certainties. Obviously, these stats are for a broad market, not any individual security or, or investment. I was just going to ask you that. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? So this is a diversified pool of stocks here. But that's the thing is that it's all about probabilities. Anyone who is promising you 
what will happen in the future, I'd put it at 50-50. Of course, it's a coin flip. Okay, so what's the takeaway of that section, uh, Jackson? So I think the takeaway of this section would be to have an investment philosophy and try to follow it. So let me define investment philosophy. This is a guiding set of principles that allow you or that help you to make investment decisions when times are tough. So when there's a recession, when there's a market correction, when your emotions are extremely high and you feel like you're on a roller coaster of volatility, this is when your guiding set of principles will allow you to make rational decisions. That's very well put. So let's move into the next section, which is the role of adaptability and flexibility. So what's rational versus what's reasonable? A really important one is that obviously the nature of finance, it's about numbers and you know, quantitative things and you know, crunching numbers and spreadsheets and models and all that stuff. But human beings are at the crux of it. So a perfect example is when we build financial plans, or when we do an analysis of the future, we have to understand each person's individual circumstances, their own personality. I mean, I could think of some of our retirees that may be 80 or 90 or 100% stocks because they understand that they could tolerate that. And we have plenty of retirees who are on the more conservative side. Obviously, your financial circumstances have to allow you to do those types of things. But the idea here is that no one's the same. There's no one size fits all in finance, and it's extremely important to mend the gap between what's perfectly rational and also what's reasonable for each person. You put a great example here. I think it's so powerful because it's... Anyways, let's go through the example because I think that's a really good one. You know, I'll start off with what's most common right now with our clients. We get the question a lot now with rates being higher. Do I pay off debt or do I invest in a diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds? And when rates were low, it was easier to make that decision. Now with rates being higher, we get the question more. And obviously there, you know, for each person, there is the perfectly rational, you should do this, this is the way to do it. But we see tons of people who have an aversion to debt, who aren't comfortable holding debt, and will prioritize that over, for example, investing or some combination of the two. We have to understand your individual circumstances. And there's no problem with that. It's perfectly reasonable. And you see that all the time, that how people have grown up and what their perception of money is will shape a lot of this type of decision. So for example, like I think about my wife's grandfather who grew up in World War II. They have a big aversion to debt and always saving for like that emergency, right? I think it's ingrained in them. And a lot of people who went through these type of traumas will have that, something like that. So he may know rationally that the best thing to do is to invest in the stock market because, you know, your odds are in your favor, like you said in your first example. But reasonably speaking, he can't do it. He needs to know that he will sleep at night by having no debt. Exactly. And it's very well put. At the crux of every financial decision, a question has to be made, is this helping me sleep at night? And that is fundamental. And then the numbers will work out. So a perfect example is Harry Markowitz. So he won the Nobel Prize for exploring the mathematical trade-off between risk and return. So finding the optimal portfolio. Now, I'm kind of, you know, a financial nerd. I mean, I had my BCom and his name popped up a ton and my CFA. And Oh, he's a legend. Yeah, but I looked at his work and it's super informative. It's all about numbers. It's finding the perfect trade-off of risk and return. Now, he has his comments and he's been quoted that saying he understands that he should be somewhere closer to 100% stocks because he probably has the means to do so. But he's actually a 50-50 portfolio, portfolio of 50% stocks, 50% bonds, because it helps him sleep at night. And that's the only reason. So he is, of all the people in the entire world to be invested in the optimal portfolio, that's his discovery. He understands that he's invested in a way that suits him. 
that helps him sleep at night. And I think that's really important. It reminds me of the Isaac Newton example of how he fell for the herding mentality in yes. the uh, South Sea bubble. And here's a guy who, you know, discovered gravity. Super and, smart guy. Yeah. And he was falling for like, you know, herding mentality and he got absolutely wiped with his money. So just because you're smart, it doesn't mean you're going to do the right thing all the time. Yeah. The way you behave is more important than your knowledge. That's it. So that's Morgan's quote. And I think that is one of the probably the guiding principles of this entire book is that's it is understanding your psychology and controlling your behavior is more important than any than anything you know. Another great example that Morgan outlays on mending what's rational and what's reasonable was a paper in 2008 by some Yale researchers on the use of leverage in investing. Now, what they found is that young investors should have a two to one ratio of leverage. So for every $1 they own, they borrow $2 and they invest that sum of money into stocks. And then over time, you taper off that risk. So what it's saying is that since you have a long horizon, you could borrow a lot of money and invest those proceeds because when you use leverage, it magnifies the risk in return. So if you're two times leverage, uh, 20% up in the market, you get 40%. But the opposite is true, that if markets are down 20%, you're down 40%. So it doubles. And what they said is that you would be significantly better off by doing that throughout your life and sticking to this two-to-one leverage and the tapering off over time. But that is absurdly unreasonable. No person could be two-to-one levered. If the markets are down 50%, you get completely wiped out because you lose 100%. So that's a perfect example of, sure, on paper, that works out. That's all great. They crunch their numbers. But no reasonable person could actually do that plan. Absolutely. That's a great example. So what's the takeaway here? The takeaway is there's no one-size-fits-all in finance. Everyone's unique. Their circumstances, their behavior, their perception of the world is completely unique. So you have to mend what's perfectly rational and also what's reasonable and find the in-between. And I think that's the role of the advisor there. Our role is to understand every single client, have a transparent way of communicating it. And once you present, you have to crunch numbers sometimes and you have to present it to clients and you have to work what that middle of the pack or like what that magic point is in the middle. So I think it's a great point. We've covered two very important topics right now. So we have the third one, which is, I think, one of the biggest ones too, because this is relevant for young investors, for old investors, and for everybody at large. So it's the power of compounding and being patient. So let's go over that. I'm sure a lot of our listeners understand the power of compounding and, and how important it is in the finance. You may have seen some spreadsheets or some charts where you see the exponential growth and the chart goes up and to the right as your interest builds more interest. But I think that we need to spend a little bit of time really digging in because the power of compounding cannot be overstated. I think a perfect example that Morgan Hazel, the author, uses is he references Warren Buffett's net worth over time. Now, so Warren Buffett started investing when he was 12 years old, and he's been investing throughout his entire life, making good decisions and also some bad, but staying invested the whole way through. Now, of the $85 billion in net worth that Warren Buffett has, 82 of that 85 was earned after his mid-60s. Wow. So close to 99% of his net worth was after his 60s. And that's so striking because that really speaks to the power of compounding over time is that that wealth really comes at the tail end. Like I've seen these graphs where for young people, for example, like the amount you save at the beginning of your career, let's say from 25 to 35, is more important than the return that you're earning in your portfolio. And as you age and you move away from like you're starting to like turn 40, 45, the return of your portfolio is more important because you're going to have that base where the compounding is going to grow. At the end of the day, compounding is just growth over growth. It's growth on growth. So the fact that you're telling me that 
90% of his net worth came after he was 60 is, is completely crazy to me. It's a little rudimentary, but I think it's a pretty striking example. And it helps people understand what exponential growth means. That's growth on growth. Human beings can understand linear. You see, you know, a straight line, it's up to the right. It's easier to understand. Exponential growth is quite something. So it's harder to see it visually. Exactly. The brain can't quite get that. Anyway, so perfect example is the question of would you rather have a million dollars today or would you rather have a penny that doubles every day for a month? Jackson? And I'm looking at Jackson. Yeah, well, it's funny that we have this example here because when I was 15 years old, my dad asked me this question. Like the guys here already said, it's hard to comprehend compounding and exponential growth. And so obviously the 15-year-old me said, I would like the million dollars today. That's quick cash. Yeah, it's a lot of money, a million dollars. I think a lot of people will say that though. Yeah. Just because it's available. It's available right now and it's impactful when you hear a million dollars versus a A penny, penny, right? A penny that doubles every day. For 30 days. There's no way that could be a lot of money, right? Yeah, exactly. So it sounds like such an easy win, but look, Lawrence, take us through the numbers here. On day one, you have a penny. Day two, two pennies and four pennies and so on. So you only crack hundred thousand dollars on day 25 out of the 30. So 25 days in out of the 30, you're like, oh, there's no way I'm going to make this up. I'm way behind. The million dollars is looking very sweet right now. Now, the next day you're at 300 something thousand and so on. And then at the very end, day 30, you're at $5.3 million. So more than five and a half times. And it was all on those last handful of days. That's crazy. So that's the importance here is that all that compounding really pays off the more time you have. And a perfect example is visualize a hockey stick. It's flat for a while, and then it really ramps up at the tail end. That is what compounding is. Time in the market is super valuable. I don't want to deviate too much, but I've had many instances where people come to us and they're a bit younger, you know, 35, and their main concern is their portfolio. And I've had to sit across people and say, look, like, you do not have an investing problem. You have a savings problem. Yeah. And I think if people understood the power of compounding, we would not fall for those pitfalls. So I think that's a fantastic example. And I think that should be taught to kids like from a very young age. All right. But guys, just like this is magical, the opposite is true as well. So what happens when you have debt? So there's negative compounding as well. So you have interest rates on the opposite side. So there's an example. I actually found this on the CRA website, which I think is great. This is what happens if you have a $2,000 balance on your credit card. So credit cards have a very high interest rate. That would be the worst debt to own. In this example, they're using 18%. It could be 25% now, 28%. So you have a $2,000 balance. In example one, you pay $60 a month. So the minimum payment, let's call it. And then in scenario two, you pay $160. So $60 plus $100. So $100 a month, not that much more. If you zoom out, In scenario one, where you just did the minimum, it takes you 13, almost 14 years to pay off. Just paying the minimum payment. It's the interest compounding constantly carrying that balance. Now, in scenario two, you paid off in a year and a half. So 14 years versus a year and a half. And in the first example, where it takes you 14 years, you pay double because the interest kept compounding and you carried that balance for longer. You took longer to pay it off. And that's extremely important, too. This is important for young people to understand. I mean, anybody who holds credit card debt because credit card debt will compound a lot faster because you're not talking about 5 6% like the market can give you over long term. You're talking about 18%. It's huge. So I think that's a perfect segue for the next section we're going to talk about and is social comparison. So walk me through that. So this is a fundamental part of being a human being. You're always comparing yourself to what's around you 
in terms of wealth and money, it's often objects. It's often things. There's always a faster car. There's always a bigger home. And it's always about who you compare yourself to, which could be the downfall for a lot of people. It's not keeping your spending in check. I mean, there is a difference between a person being rich and a person being wealthy. And wealth is what you don't see. That's a great quote. Yes, I think that's quite striking. So Morgan uses a really nice example about a rookie baseball player who just comes into the league. He signs his first contract. It's $500,000 a year. To any person, that's a lot of money. You're rich, you know, objectively. But if this person, if this rookie is in the same locker room as Mike Trout, who just earned a 12-year, $430 million contract, relatively speaking now, this rookie looks poor. And then you kind of take that to the next level. And, you know, the people in Mike Trout's, you know, inner circle. So a little bit of context, Mike Trout is one of the best baseball players in the world. He probably hangs around some high flying people. Let's call them hedge fund managers. So he has inner circle. That's that's who he compares himself to. Now, to be in the top 10 highest paid hedge fund managers at the time of this book, you had to earn $340 million per year. So now we're talking about a whole other magnitude of wealth. So now Mike Trout, you know, relatively speaking, looks poor or not quite as rich. So it's all about who people compare themselves to. We've seen the studies where people, one of the biggest predictors of what people are going to drive is their neighbors or where they live in. We know that as human beings, we seek validation through social proof and our choices of the stuff that we buy, you know, the cars, the houses we drive, the schools we go to. But I think the important thing is We've said this many times. It's not to judge someone who's buying a BMW or an Audi. If you like cars and you can afford it and you have a financial plan that works and you're sticking to it, 100%, go for it. I think the problem is when you're buying those things, you know, and you're getting into the pitfalls of not saving enough, not getting ready for retirement, you're getting into debt. You know, think about the compounding we just talked about. Think about the situation now. You're buying a car, you're paying 8 9% interest. So that compounds quickly. It's huge. When it comes to financial planning, the social comparison, now with social media as well, is just a huge part of like sticking to a plan. It's- and it also ties into what's reasonable versus what's rational. If you could afford that fancy car, and you know, it could even be a sports car. It just has to make sense. It's all about trade-offs. But unfortunately, people get kind of sucked in and they borrow to buy these cars or there's too much house, for example. And that's where things could get quite destructive and overextending yourself. And It's the adonic treadmill. You're constantly on this loop of bigger and better things and it never ends because there's always someone who has more money than you or makes more money than you, have nicer things, and that's just a part of life. And not getting sucked up in that is really one of the biggest things you could do in your financial life not to. There's a great example in the book where he's talking about like when he was a valet in the valet service and people come with expensive cars and he says like people usually care about the car, not the person driving the car. So nobody will care about these things more than you do. So yeah, it is a big problem. So what is the takeaway here, guys? Yeah. So as we said, like the big takeaway here is not to get sucked up with the goalposts moving over time. As you go through your financial life, go up in your career and you earn more money, it's very easy to constantly move the goalposts to keep upgrading things in your life. And that's not how you build wealth. When you say the goalpost is really saying what is enough, figuring out what is enough for you. Exactly. We're going to wrap up here. And I think we're going to end up with what I think, and I think you guys agree, is one of the most important sections in the book. And that is building healthy financial habits. So let's go through that. What are some of the healthiest financial habits that we can find? I think you've identified a few and then let's wrap it up. I think building healthy financial habits is such a great thing to do, especially when you start young. Before I get into that, let me just break down what a habit even is. So Google's definition of a habit is an acquired mode of behavior that has become nearly or completely involuntary. 
So the reason why I'm advocating for starting these healthy habits young is because when you do so, that's when they become nearly or completely involuntary, you know, 10 years down the line, 15, 20 years down the line. It's almost like second nature. Exactly. It becomes seamless. It's not even that hard to do anymore. Now, there's so many reasons why you should start young, because once you have those good, healthy financial habits, and once you have a long time horizon, that's when the odds of your investment success go up. I have a couple healthy habits here, healthy financial habits. So I'm going to name my top three, but there are so many healthy financial habits that you can develop and gain over time. But to name a few here, I have pay yourself first. So that would be before you go out and spend your money, go ahead and put some towards your savings so that that way you're not spending first and then saving what little you have left. That's a big one. So the second one, which we already sort of talked about was developing an investment philosophy. These are your guiding principles of how to invest and how to make investment decision when times get tough and when your emotions are heightened. That would be your investment North Star. Exactly. And so the last one, which I'm going to talk about a little bit more is to tune out the noise. And so what I mean by the noise is there's so much financial media, there's so much people talking about negative financial advice, you know, giving you advice that doesn't necessarily apply to you. And having the ability to tune out all that noise will give you probably the most amount of success over the long term. So there's this quote that historian Deirdre McCloskey said in the book, in Morgan Housel's book. It goes, for reasons I have never understood, people like to hear that the world is going to hell. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That's a good now, one. This quote is mainly speaking to the fact that people give so much attention towards pessimism and they brush off optimism. And so I have a leading quote here to follow up the last one. This is Morgan Housel's quote in the book. Tell someone that everything will be great and they're likely either going to shrug you off or offer you a skeptical eye. Tell someone they're in danger and you have their undivided attention. That is so true. So like I said, people pay attention to pessimism. They listen to the financial media when they think there's a recession coming or when the market is going to correct and they give way too much weight to that media, those pieces of advice, when realistically they're probably not that applicable to you. So I have an example here from the book. It's talking about the frequency of recessions over a 120-year period. So it goes like this. There were 1,428 months between 1900 and 2019. Just over 300 of them were during a recession. So by keeping your cool 22% of the time and staying invested, you reap the rewards that the markets offer. Now that's the importance of tuning out the noise. Because if you can stay invested and you know just stay invested through recessions and not try to time it, you are definitely going to capture everything that the market has to offer. That's Ronald Reed right there. Yeah, exactly. That's the janitor right from the beginning of the book. So for those listeners, that's 20% of all months in the US market in the last century and a bit were during a recession. And you see those charts of like the S&P 500 going up and to the right and incredible wealth being built. And this is true for any market, just because there's a recession and there's always a next crisis. That's how these talking heads and these pundits and these market experts make their money. A little bit of doom and gloom because that gets the clicks in the eyeballs. And that is not an investment advice. They do not know who they're talking to. If they're giving you stock picks or buy this or sell that or, you know, to rotate from stocks to cash, they don't know your circumstances. It's the reason why it's easier to be a pessimist than an optimist. It's easier to destroy than build something. I think the financial news, they understand people's psychology. And 
I don't know if you guys have seen this, but I remember reading a study not long ago that said that the ratio of negative news to positive news is somewhere like 18 or 19 to one. Wow. So it's absolutely crazy because they understand the human psychology. They understand what drives clicks and eyeballs and they understand what drives attention to them. So the difference is that they don't understand what your circumstances are. Like we sit across people, we listen to them, we know what their goals are. We work with them to understand what their goals are. And that's what helps us understand how a plan should be built, how an asset allocation should work. Like the fact that they're recommending people to do things with their portfolio and their money, it's absolutely crazy. It's entertainment. It's not advice. I'm going a little bit on a tangent here off to the side, but one of the biggest things in finance that will correlate with your success over time is minimizing mistakes and you know, reacting to the flavor of the day, the news of the day will likely inevitably be a mistake. And the best you can avoid those and just stay with it, the better off your odds will be. I think that's a great way to uh, end the episode. Any last comments? I think we've covered pretty much everything. I mean, it's a big book. It's hard to do it justice in one episode, but I think we've covered pretty much what we think are the most important points and with good takeaways for our clients and our listeners, but anything else? I would encourage everybody to read the book. Of course. It'll make you think extra hard. There's some very elegant stories in there. We covered five of them today, probably. I think there's about 80 in there. So, you know, it'll make you think about money in ways that you've never thought about it. It's super readable. It's not like a textbook. I think any person would be very well served reading it. And with that, Jackson, it was very nice to have you on the show. I hope I'm back again sometime soon. (laughs) Good episode, guys. This was a lot of fun. And thank you for listening. Take care. Thanks. You've been listening to the Empowered Investor Podcast, hosted by Keith Matthews. Please visit tma-invest.com to subscribe to this podcast, learn more about how his firm helps Canadian investors, or to request a complimentary copy of The Empowered Investor. Investments and investing strategies should be evaluated based on your own objectives. Listeners of this podcast should use their best judgment and consult a financial expert prior to making any investment decisions based on the information found in this podcast.